The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Well, now we have the opportunity to continue our worship together as we look at God's Word. This summer, we continue through our special series, What the Bible Says About Fill-in-the-Blank. And we started with the gospel, what the Bible says about the gospel. We talked about what the Bible says about educating your children last week. Uh, and today it is what the Bible says about Mormonism. So about three years ago, I started uh, doing this special thing during the summer of what the Bible says about various topics and getting input from some folks. And actually, this topic uh, was submitted two years, two summers ago. I actually had a lot of people who submitted, uh, can you talk about Mormonism? And I, I, I don't know why people were suggesting that. could be that uh, at the time it was a, when it was submitted, there was a, a candidate who was a Mormon. I don't know. Or maybe just you, have, you used to be a Mormon, family relations or whatever. But I thought it was appropriate since there were so many people a couple of years ago and I never had time to address it. Uh, that it needs to be addressed, what the Bible says about Mormonism. Um, a GBFer told me this week, well, so what's the message on this week? And I said, well, what the Bible says about Mormonism. And they said, well, Mormonism, that's not in the Bible. How are you going to do that? The, the word Mormonism. And uh, I said, well, yeah, that's true, but uh, we'll look at some of the main beliefs of Mormonism and then compare it to Scripture. And that's why the sufficiency of Scripture. You can take anything in life. I don't care what the worldview is. Uh, or the ideology, you can examine its central tenets or beliefs and then you examine that through the grid of Scripture. So that's what we're doing with everything that we look at this summer. By the way, if you need a Bible, you can go ahead and raise your hand and we've got one coming down here that you can borrow uh, during our study together. Keep your hand up if you need to borrow one. Uh, We also have an outline provided there for you. Five main points on... or questions we want to ask about Mormonism. And there's a lot we could say about Mormonism. So I was just trying to distill it down, make it succinct, but just give you the main thrust of this uh, religion and its theology and how that squares with the Bible. Uh, before I start, can you re- is there anybody that grew up as a Mormon? Just out of curiosity. So we've got at least one. <laughs> so it's, it's around us. Uh, it's a reality. Mormonism. Is there anybody who's a Mormon here today and you're visiting us? You don't have to raise your hand because I understand if you, but anyway, I, uh, that's always possible. Uh, so if you are, thank you for being here. And a challenge here on, uh, I'm presenting your religion from my point of view, so hopefully I'm honest and faithful and have, and, and do it with integrity. It's very important. You don't want to misrepresent somebody else's view. It's just, not right. Uh, but I'm kind of an insider on Mormonism. Uh, age five, being raised in a Roman Catholic home, youngest of ten children. But at age five, one of my siblings became a Mormon at age 18. And they were a faithful Mormon for about 40 years. Zealous, tried to convert the entire family into Mormonism, including me as a five-year-old impressionable little brother. So from the time I was five until I was in 12th grade, even though I went to a Catholic school, 
I was uh, inundated with Mormonism. It's social life, the church, all of its events, even its theology. So and after one of my siblings became a Mormon at age 18, two years later, another one of my siblings became a Mormon as well. So I was two, and the next one that became a Mormon was actually the closest sibling that I had. So there was a very strong influence, exposure, and pull to Mormonism my entire life. I went to their social events. I went to their church. Uh, for four years, I played in a Mormon basketball league through high school. It was mostly all Mormons. I was in a Mormon talent show. You laugh. You laugh because you don't think I have talent? That, that hurts my feelings. What did you do, Pastor Cliff? I told uh, corny one-line jokes. This is a teenager in high school, and I juggled. I juggled two oranges and an apple, and I ate the apple while I juggled. I kid you not. I'll do it here sometime from the pulpit. Uh, I was pretty good. I got messy. They thought it was hilarious. But anyway, so that was the Mormon talent show. And there were times definitely where I was intrigued by it, and I definitely remember it's learning it from its theology from my siblings. And, and then I had a radical transformation when I went off to college and got saved and heard the full gospel and uh, became a Christian my freshman year. And when God opened my eyes and I became a believer, uh, the first thing that dawned on me is, wow, I've got to go back and save my family. My nine brothers and sisters, my parents, uh, my cousins that I was very close to. Um, so I tried that, studied up on all the religions of the world, including Mormonism, because I was so entrenched in it, and came to realize it's, this is, Mormonism is not in the Bible. It's not biblical Christianity. And went home at Christmas break, a brand new born-again Christian, the youngest sibling in the family, and began to evangelize and tell all of my older siblings that they were wrong and believing the wrong thing. That always goes over real well. Uh, hey, here's what I learned in my first year of college. You're wrong! Uh, especially your religion and the God you worship. And, uh, but I did manage to get the gospel in there. And so that was a shocker that uh, I just thought everybody would say, oh, yeah, now that they know the truth, they'd you know, abandon their false views and embrace Christ. And that did not happen. And the strong, some of the strongest resistance was from siblings who were Mormon. Because they actually had answers and retorts to my comments and the verses I would quote. So they were well-educated in their belief system. Um, so that, that was an eye-opener of an experience. So that's, oh, and then after, see, and then I became a Bible major, and then I got, uh, and then I went on to seminary and studied some more, and then I moved to Utah. I taught four years at a Christian school. And then God uh, have us go to northern Utah, to Mormon country. Oh, by the way, before that, during seminary and after seminary, I got very heavily involved in ex-Mormons for Jesus and Saints Alive, which was another organization. Several organizations that uh, witnessed specifically to Mormons just had a heart for them and a, an interest in Mormonism. And uh, got to know all the leaders of those organizations, read all their books, and just uh, considered myself kind of a missionary to Mormonism. Then God ended up having us go to uh, Utah, northern Utah, and so we lived there for almost two years and we're just surrounded by Mormons all over the place. And our landlord was this 110-year-old Mormon lady who called us Gentiles all the time. That's what they do. If you're not a Mormon, you're a Gentile. But she liked our money. It was green. It, it worked. Um, nice lady, though. And so we were in Utah for about two years. So that was another interest, inside exposure to Mormonism. And then one of my best friends is a missionary to Mormons in Utah. And he's been there for 20 years and he has an official 
ministry to Christians in the state of Utah and also to the Mormon community. So I'm in regular contact with him. Um, so I think it's just this is God's timing to talk about Mormonism for a lot of reasons. There's a lot of confusion about Mormonism. I remember when I was five years old and one of my siblings said, boy, dad's really mad at so-and-so. Well, why is that? Well, because they have abandoned the faith and they've become a Mormon. And I said, a moron? Because I, di- I didn't know what a Mormon was. And I didn't know what a moron was either. Um, that's just an example of my ignorance at the time. But there's a lot of confusion, even in the Christian world, about what Mormonism is, what they believe, what they teach. My experience is that most Christians just really don't know what Mormonism really teaches, and so people kind of don't know. And for the most part, you can, uh, I guess the evangelical world or, quote, the Christian world here in America would probably be on one of two extremes, and I've seen it firsthand, and I think uh, there needs to be proper balance in talking about Mormonism, which is my goal today. So on the one hand, you've got uh, Christians who are, they think that Mormonism is the worst false religion on planet Earth. And I kid you not, and that's kind of their approach, that's their mentality. That's actually the circle of people that I was around when I first got saved. And that the number one evil on planet Earth is Mormonism, and uh, we need to deal with it. And in hindsight, if you look back at people with that attitude, like if Mormons come to your door and knock on the door, you slam the door in their face, you don't give them the time of day, uh, you have nothing to do, you shake the dust uh, from your feet, and that's how you deal with Mormons, because they are the worst. But when I look back, I think, boy, the people with this mentality usually were, were, are ex-Mormons. They're, they used to be Mormon, they became Christian. That's it, from my personal experience, which tells me uh, they're not as being as objective as probably as they should be in assessing this religion called Mormonism. Is that really how we should treat Mormons? Uh, they are the worst of all possible world religions and beliefs, and we don't give them the time of the day, and they're inherently evil and we should have nothing to do with them and keep the conversation short. And uh, oh, there's two Mormon missionaries. Oh, let's go after them. Let's go. Oh, when will they walk? You just walk by 50 other people who don't know Christ. How, how can we point them out? Um, so that that is very real. Um, and I don't think it's the right perspective or the right approach. I don't think it's a biblical approach in, in dealing with Mormonism. Then there's the other extreme. Uh, more and more, and it's growing in evangelical Christianity, even by conservative evangelicals, where they are just kind of open arms and embracing Mormonism as just kind of another quasi-Protestant denomination of Christianity, which is also wrong. That's the other extreme. From Joel Olstein for two years now, three years, been on CNN many times. They've interviewed him from Wolf Blitzer to, I think, uh, Larry King and the other guy, uh, all the way from three years ago to most recently in April, on CNN, where interviewing Joel Olstein, the most influential Christian pastor in America, when they ask him, "So, what do you think of uh, you know, we got a presidential candidate who's a, a Mormon? What do you think of him as a Christian? Do you think he's a Christian?" And Joel Olstein says, "Oh yeah, because he believes he be, he professes to believe in Jesus, and he does profess to believe in Jesus, and he says that Jesus is the Son of God and Jesus is the Savior." And so Joel Olstein's telling his faction of the Christian world that. Uh, Mormonism is Christianity, in essence. And even places like uh, Denver Seminary have professors who are embracing Mormonism and entertaining Mormons on their campus and having them teach in their classes and even writing books uh, talking about how uh, Mormonism and biblical Christianity have much in common in the main doctrines of the faith. That, that is wrong. That's the other extreme, but it's happening. So 
Uh, we've got to set the record straight. I've even talked to Christians even recently who are confused about Mormonism and even said things like, well, you know, they believe in Jesus, so aren't they just uh, another denomination of Christianity? Well, not really. Because you've got to get past uh, the terminology, get past the surface level and, and see what it really teaches and believes. So that's kind of one of my goals. There's no way I can possibly address all that can be said about Mormons. There's just too much information. There's great resources on the, the Internet and great books that you can further your study. Uh, and I've taught on Mormonism. I taught on Mormonism uh, extensively. I taught through the Book of Mormon uh, at a Christian high school in Southern California to my class. They were seniors in high school. So I've taught on the Book of Mormon. I've read it many times. Uh, I taught at a church I was at previously, taught through Mormonism to adults, what they believe. So I think I have a pretty good handle on what it is. One, of the, I, one experience that I had that was unique when I was in Utah, which is kind of the mecca or hub of Mormonism, uh, God providentially allowed me to meet and actually become friends with the chairman of the Bible department at Brigham Young University. Got like 35,000 students there, and he was the chairman of the department. He was the largest major at their school, the college. And I had him in my home. We began talking. We talked a lot of theology, uh, picking his brain about what Mormonism truly believes. Uh, interest, and I tried to, you know, share the gospel with him. But um, as God would have it, I was able to escort him with another friend to Grace Community Church to meet John MacArthur for a weekend. So we spent a weekend where Grace Community Church hosted this guy. They rolled out the red carpet and we had a couple of meetings with John MacArthur and it was just a wonderful dialogue and Pastor John was very cordial, hospitable, friendly. Made the mistake of extending to him a Diet Coke. That was, But anyway, if you know Mormonism, uh, supposedly you can't have that caffeine. Um, but John didn't waste time getting off on rabbit trails. After about 45 minutes, he kind of realized what this guy believed, where his heart was. He doesn't know God. And then Johnny Mac went into pastoral mode and evangelist mode and just gave the simple gospel to him. Brother, tell me about your view of Jesus. And it was, I was like, wow. It was awesome. Uh, gave him the simple gospel, very friendly to him, and even kept up some correspondence after that and that, that man is still a Mormon. Uh, but anyway, that was just one of those unbelievable experiences. But let's go ahead and look at uh, five things I want to highlight about Mormonism in contrast to the Bible, just to establish our awareness. And point number one is the view of the authority in the Mormon church. You have to look at the authority of any worldview. What is their authority? What, what is their standard by which they determine what is true? True about God, life, death, Sin, heaven, hell. What's your authority? Is it because you say so? Or somebody else said so? You had a revelation? Some dictator's opinion? So you, you have to address the issue of authority in any worldview first. But before I get into the specifics of the, the authority of the, of the Mormon church, by which they determine all of their beliefs and their doctrine... By way of summary, for those of you that don't know, Mormonism is also known as the Latter-day Saints. It's the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And an acronym for that is LDS, Latter-day Saints. Uh, they're the church that God raised up in the latter days. Later on, 1,800 years after Christ started Christianity with the apostles, and over time, true Christianity 
died out, became totally apostate, no longer existed on planet Earth, and so God had to restart true Christianity, and God did it through a young boy of 14 years of age in New York in 1820 when supposedly God the Father, who according to Mormonism has a physical body, and Jesus Christ appeared to this 14-year-old boy in New York and told this boy, uh, all the religions of the earth are corrupt, none of them are true, there are no true churches anymore on this church, and God is going to use you to start a new or, or the new church, the new true church. And that was Joseph Smith, according to his own testimony, when he was 14 in 1920. Then, not long after that, another an angel came to Joseph Smith, supposedly, again as a teenager, an angel named Moroni. And supposedly Moroni was a shining, glowing angel of light who brought new revelations to Joseph Smith, the teenager and told him that he would write a new book to add to the Bible. And then a few years later, Joseph Smith ended up supposedly write, translating this new book, and it became the Book of Mormon. So it was written by Joseph Smith in 19, or 1830, 1830, and then shortly thereafter, Joseph Smith officially started his church, which was not called the Mormon Church. It wasn't called uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Those names came later. But that's when it began, and it began in New York, and then it moved around to different places, all the way from uh, Illinois and Ohio, and then uh, under Brigham Young, after Joseph Smith died, Brigham Young became the second prophet of the church, and Brigham Young, and the reason the Mormons were getting moving all over the place, they were getting chased out of town wherever they went. That's why they kept moving from state to state. And then finally Brigham Young uh, led them to Utah, and there was nobody there in this vast land, and Brigham Young said, this is it. And for the next 30 years... Uh, Brigham Young established Utah as the Mecca of Mormonism. Yet when Jesus returns, Jesus will return to planet Earth and he will land at Independence, Missouri, according to Mormonism. Not Jerusalem, Independence, Missouri. Why? Because that was one of the key headquarters along the way from when they went to New York to Utah. So that's just a brief history of how Mormonism started. So it's a new religion. Uh, it has a young history, and it started in America, which also makes it somewhat distinct from a lot of worldviews. And it's a growing religion. It is an aggressive religion. Uh, there are now over 10 million uh, members, formerly of the Mormon Church, over 120 temples that they've built around the world. Maybe you've seen one. Um, and, and then the church is everywhere. The temple and the churches are different. Uh, Gentiles, those of us who aren't Mormons, can't go into a Mormon temple on the inside. But we can go into the church, the local churches, which are called the award, W-A-R-D. So that's just a brief history. And then uh, Mormonism has grown definitely an in influence here in America. Notable Mormons uh, rising in government. The first were probably Donna and Marie, the entertainers. Uh, they were the poster children of Mormonism in the 1970s and 80s and even, uh, even to this day. And now we've got influential politicians uh, in the American government, even now for the first time in history, an actual presidential candidate who is a Mormon, a professing Mormon. And so I think that's one of the reasons why Christians are interested. And again, and Christians are weird. Uh, I'll just leave it at that. Christians are weird about their politics because they're all over the map. And you talk to some Christians, oh, I'm only going to vote for a Christian. Good luck. I guess you're not voting this year uh, to... Other people, they'll just vote for anybody and they don't really vet the candidate and they don't even think about, well, what does the candidate believe on biblical issues like marriage and abortion and life that's in the Bible? Those aren't political issues. So, you know, Christians are all over the map. And so I know Christians and I have, I'm friends with Christians who have told me 
uh, I'm only going to vote for a Christian. Or I'm not voting for that guy because he's a Mormon. And then I challenge their thinking. Oh, okay, so... And this isn't... Uh, sometimes it's not the same. They might just... Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to vote for that guy because he's a Mormon. Okay, well, what about this other candidate who's a Roman Catholic? And this, this is a Christian talking. So are you saying that it's... Mormonism is the worst religion on planet Earth. Well, I'm not saying that. Well, okay. I'm a former Catholic. If I was going to do it based on what a personal aversion I had to something, then I'd say I'm never going to vote for a Roman Catholic. I mean, I don't think that's really the basis by which a Christian should think it through. But anyway, that's okay. Uh, The point is, if you get into a political discussion about it, it gets really messy. So hopefully at the end, in a quick summary, we can kind of, using biblical guidelines, help us think through how does this apply to how we treat Mormons today across the street in our family or even as a candidate who's running for government here in America where we can vote. But let's go ahead and start on the five main doctrines I want to look at and their view of authority. And just quickly, here are their main sources of authority. They say they have four standard works. And as a matter of fact, that's kind of one of the things they use to tell us Christians that their religion is superior to ours. Because you Christians, you only have one book, we have four. I am not kidding. They're proud of that. And so here are the four standard works. First, uh, I put the DNC. That's called the Doctrine doctrine and Covenants. Here's my copy, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price. Typically, a Mormon will have one book, Doctrine and Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, all four of them, plus the King James Bible, all in one volume with very small print. And the Doctrine and Covenants, supposedly, it says right here, the Doctrine and Covenants of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints containing revelations given to Joseph Smith, the prophet. So these are prophecies, apparently, that Joseph Smith had that he wrote down that are now binding authoritative doctrine. So Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, then number two is the Pearl of Great Price, which is a, uh, the second part of this. It's a different book. Same thing if you read it. Uh, Pearl of Great Price, revelations given by God to Joseph Smith, the prophet. Modern-day prophecies. They are apparently inerrant, authoritative, more binding than the Bible itself. As a matter of fact, more perfect than the Bible itself. Then there's the Book of Mormon. And Mormon missionaries will come to your door very aggressively and they will give you a free copy Uh the Book of Mormon that Joseph Smith translated, supposedly, from Reformed hieroglyphics in Egyptian, uh, using the Urim and the Thummim and blah, blah, blah. That's their testimony. And, it, and Joseph Smith said that the Book of Mormon was the most perfect book in existence ever that God has ever given to humanity. That's what he claimed. So those are their authoritative writings. They are in, in, inerrant, supposedly authoritative, and even have more sway than, more reliable than the Bible itself. Then I put the living prophet. And I, I'm kind of putting these in order of priority and authority in the Mormon church. Because the living pro- the Mormon church boasts they're proud of the fact that they, they have a living prophet. You Christians don't. All your prophets are dead. We are a living church. We have a living prophet. Because there's this direct succession of authority from God that was missing between the early church and the time of Joseph Smith. There was no direct link of authority. And so that's why God raised up Joseph Smith in 1830 and ordained him with the authority of God because John the Baptist supposedly appeared to Joseph Smith and ordained him for this ministry. And then never since then, there's been a direct successor from Joseph Smith so that the Mormon church believes it's always had a direct prophet ordained of God. 
uh, that heads their church. And so today, if, if, unless he's died recently, Gordon B. Hinckley's been the, the living prophet of the church for decades now, and he's in his 90s. Uh, but he, the, and the living prophet of the Mormon church is also considered the president of the church and the apostle of the church and the prophet of the church. So Gordon B. Hinckley uh, is all three of those in terms of his role. And he can actually give direct revelation to the church. He can actually overturn previous doctrine. And that has happened. In the late 1800s, a living prophet supposedly got new vision from God, all of a sudden declaring in the 1890s that polygamy was not good for now. Here in America, it needs to cease and desist. It's one man, one woman. Even though polygamy is condoned and taught and advocated in the doctrines and covenants of their doctrine, they still believe in the doctrine. But just for now, it's on hiatus. Or that black people uh, were not equal with white people. And then a revelation came along and supposedly God changed his mind. Oh, black people are okay now. Because they taught, Joseph Smith believed, Brigham Young believed, that black people came from Cain. And in Genesis chapter 4, when it said God cursed Cain with a mark, that mark was he gave him black skin. So the Mormon church believed that for many decades until that was changed in the 1900s, actually. So uh, the living prophet, very important. And then finally, you've got the LDS church itself with its... Uh, Council and its prophets and its high priests and its associates and the Council of the Twelve and on and on and the bishops and just an incredible hierarchical structure that is just monumental mammoth and all-encompassing in the Mormon church. And that all is authoritative and it's in this order. Then finally they would claim that the King James Bible is of God insofar as it is correctly translated. There's always that caveat. They don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God. Your New American Standard, your ESV, your NIV, it's got to be the King James Version. And it's not just the King James Version. It is the King James Version insofar as it is correctly translated, which means the Mormon Church is the only authority that has the right to interpret the Bible correctly. So if you're talking to a Mormon and you quote a Bible verse and you say, well, it's by grace through faith apart from works. That means you can't be saved by works. Well, we are not understanding that verse properly. We're misinterpreting it. We are blinded. We don't have the authority to interpret uh, the Bible. And then they will quickly go to Matthew chapter 5. No, Jesus said, be perfect as I am perfect. And they would say that there's a command from the Bible where we're supposed to do good works and we can work our way to deity and become gods. And so they're the only ones that can quote the Bible and teach it correctly, but they will even admit that the King James Version has errors. So the Bible is not as perfect as everything else that I just mentioned, but that, thing, that whole thing collectively is the authority of the Mormon church. So if you're going to talk to a Mormon, uh, they will probably be referring to these sources, and if you want to know their theology, you've got to go there. So that's their view of authority. Then, in contrast, what is the authority in biblical Christianity? It's just the Bible. The scripture from Genesis to Revelation as God has given it. The 66 books of the Bible. Second uh, Timothy is clear. Paul said, who was speaking as an apostle through the power of the Holy Spirit. All scripture is God breathed. All scripture from Genesis to Revelation in our Bible. Paul is talking about the Old Testament and even Revelation. He was giving it as an apostle. This is the very word of God written down for us. It is the final authority. And so that's the, the historic biblical position of a true Christian church, and it remains true today. 
Jesus attested to it. The apostles did. They wrote it down. And at the end of, and Jesus said, the apostles, they're going to write down what I tell them to write down. And they did. They inscripturated the words of Jesus. That's where we got our New Testament. That is the final authority. It is complete. It is sufficient. We have everything we need to know in the New Testament that God has given us. Jesus said so. John said so. Paul said so. And at the end of Revelation chapter 22, John, the last prophet, writing the last book of the Bible, giving the last revelation of God before God would close his canon. Uh, John, and I'll just read it to you. And if you've got your Bible, you can look at it. And this is in the end of the century there, around 90, probably 90 A.D., just before John died as an old man. And one of the only, maybe the only apostle who didn't die as a martyr, but died of old age. And at the very end of his book, and appropriately so, put at the very end of our Bible. This is Jesus talking, verse 18. Or let's see, no, I, Jesus, verse 16, have sent my angel to testify. Uh, and then it closes with this testimony, verse 18. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, which is the book of Revelation, which tells us about the end of the world. If anyone adds to these words... God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life. So God ends his book, the Bible, saying, do not add from it, do not take away from it. The Bible is sufficient. That's the biblical view. That's the view of the historic church. That is actually the teaching of the Bible itself. So that's why we say we believe that the Bible is the ultimate authority. The Bible has authority over the church. The Bible has authority over all the elders. The Bible has authority over all the pastors. The Bible has authority over all the members. The Bible has authority over all the governments of the world. The Bible speaks for God. The Bible is God's Word. What God believes, the Bible believes. What the Bible teaches is what God has declared. It's just as simple as that. And by the way, Mormons say they believe in the Bible, but... Every experience I've ever had, uh, Mormons do not study the Bible the way a typical born-again Christian does. This is our food. We take it in daily. We study the whole thing. It is our life. Uh, that is not how a Mormon would approach Scripture. It's piece by piece, here a verse, there a verse. Uh, you learn it in elementary school, maybe that one out of Matthew 5, maybe John 10, where Jesus said, Be ye gods, or another key verse that fits their theology, or James chapter 1, verse 5 is a key one for Mormons. So you, you learn just a few, you memorize them, you get them ingrained in your brain, and then uh, that's your knowledge of the Bible. And you, you're not continually in the Word of God as a Mormon. That is not typical. They don't go to their churches, their wards, with their Bible under their arm, ready to hear a 45-minute lesson on the Bible. That's not their world. Uh, so when they say they believe in the Bible, you've got to realize they mean something different. So uh, that's their view of authority contrasted with our authority. The ultimate standard of truth is God's written scripture contained in the 66 books of the Bible. Uh, going to number two, the, their view of God. Uh, simply LDS, Latter-day Saints, they believe in polytheism. A polytheistic God. Poly means many theism as God, so they believe in many gods, countless gods. They're, they're unashamed about this. If they're honest, if you're talking to an honest, well-informed Mormon, they're going to be honest with you and tell you, yeah, the, yeah, there are actually many gods. And as a matter of fact, all of these gods are finite. There is no such thing really. I mean, they, they will use that terminology, the eternal God, but they have a different meaning uh, than we do of what it means uh, that God is eternal. So it's a polytheistic religion. They believe in many gods. And the God of Mormonism is called Jehovah, or he's the father and God the Father supposedly uh, used to be a man. 
God the Father apparently lived on another planet at one time. He was born of a mom and dad. He was a human. He lived a human life. He was sinful like everybody else. He worked. His, he did good works. And God the Father eventually became a God. And he did all the things he was supposed to do. And then he got his own planet that he rules over and it's called Earth. He worked his way to perfection. And he, by the way, God the Father is married to innumerable, countless, heavenly wives. So even God himself is a, a polygamist, God the Father. And God the Father is procreating spirit babies who live in the spirit world so that someday they can inhabit a physical body and be born here on earth. So, and, and you too, if you're a good Mormon, one of your goals is you can become a God, especially the males. Uh, one of your goals should be to do good, to do everything Mormonism tells you to do, to become a God someday after you die. And then hopefully you'll get your own planet and you'll be surrounded by your goddess wives for all eternity. I am not kidding. This is the heart of Mormon theology. I have a relative, fifth generation Mormon, graduated from Brigham Young University, a guy who's very honest. And he told me one day, you know, Cliff, you know what my two goals in life are? I said, what's that? To become a millionaire before I die and to become a God after I die. I was like, wow. And then he began to explain Mormon theology to me. To become king, I mean, if you think about it, to become a millionaire and king of the world, this theology came from Joseph Smith when he was 14. That sounds like a 14-year-old, doesn't it? But that's at the heart of their theology. They don't want to talk about that. When a Mormon comes to your door, he's not going to talk about polytheism. He's going to talk about things that don't offend you. He's going to talk about the King James. He's usually going to be holding a King James Bible and not the Book of Mormon. And they'll start with things that you would, at the surface, agree with. It's only after you become a Mormon and inside the circle of Mormonism, and when you've become convinced this is God's true religion, then you will begin to be catechized and taught on these other views that we find so strange and unbiblical, like polytheism. So same thing with Jesus. Jesus is not eternal. He is not eternal God. He was a created being. He was a normal man. He uh, had human parents. Uh, he was a sinner at one time. He worked his way to godhood by obedience and doing the works of Mormonism, and uh, as a matter of fact, he had three wives apparently that he was married to, and before he was born and lived on earth, he was a spirit baby in the spirit world, and in the spirit world he was brothers with Lucifer, and they were spirit brothers together, and then eventually Lucifer went bad, Jesus was good. Um, so that's their view of God. Whereas Christianity is clear. Biblical Christianity is triune, triune monotheism. There's only one God. And this one God is made up of three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Those three persons are co-eternal. They are co-equal. They have always been around. All three of them are uncreated. They are different persons from one another, but they have perfect unity that make up the one God of the universe who is called Yahweh. Jesus is eternal. He's uncreated. Before he was born of Mary, Jesus did not have a physical body. He condescended to human sinners and took on a human body out of his love for sinners lived a perfect life, and then rose again in a resurrection body. And Jesus still has that resurrection body, but he went back to heaven to be with the Father and the Spirit, whom he has lived with for all eternity, before all creation. They have always been God. They didn't work their way to become a God. Three persons, one God, eternal God. So that's the biblical view of God. 
So you've got view of authority, view of God, and now specifically a view of Jesus, which I've hinted at. Uh, the Latter-day Saint Church or the Mormons believe that Jesus is a created being. I already said that. He's not eternal. <clears throat> which is totally contrary to what Scripture says about Jesus. He's strictly a human, meaning that he was really no different than any of us. They reject the virgin birth of Christ in their theology. And Brigham Young taught that actually Adam, who's actually Yahweh, Adam is the father, and Adam came down somehow and had an intimate relationship with Mary, and the byproduct was Jesus. So they reject the virgin birth of Christ. Jesus hasn't always been God. Jesus obeyed, worked real hard, sinned at what time, overcame his sin, won the, won the approval of his God, and eventually he became a God himself. That's just a very short synopsis of what Mormonism would believe about Jesus. Whereas the Bible is very clear. Jesus is uncreated. He is eternal. That's John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word. That's, that's Jesus. The Word is called Je We know that from John 1.14. The Word became flesh. The Word be took on a human body. So in the beginning, before creation, in the beginning before creation was the Word. Was. He existed already. Jesus did as the Word. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. Which means, in the beginning, before creation, Jesus already existed and was with the Father. In the Greek Terminology is specific. Jesus, the Word, was facing the Father. Jesus was face to face with the Father. Jesus was equal with the Father before creation as the Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word Himself was God in His very nature and essence. He is eternal God. That's what John 1 1 means. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's what the Bible clearly says about Jesus. He is uncreated. He is eternal. He's equal to the Father. He himself is Yahweh. The Father is called Yahweh. The Holy Spirit is Yahweh. Jesus himself by Paul in Romans is called Yahweh. So that's the true Jesus. Hebrews says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In other words, Jesus has the attribute of immutability. He is unchanging. He does not progress. He doesn't get better. He doesn't grow. He's not uh, becoming a God. He never did. He's always been the same. He has always been the eternal, infinite, almighty, uncreated, judge of the universe, Jesus as God. That is our blessed Savior. Jesus is Christianity. You've got to have a proper view of Jesus to have a proper view of the Bible, Christianity, or to be saved. It all starts with who Jesus is. So Jesus is uncreated. He is the God-man. God became a man. That is the exact opposite of what Mormonism teaches. They say that man can become God. The Bible says God became a man. You couldn't be any different. God became a man. He retained 100% deity when he became a man. So Jesus is the God-man. 100% God, 100% man. Well, how does that work? I have no idea. Jesus is unchanging, which means he is uh, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is God. Jesus should be worshipped. Jesus should be prayed to. If you're talking to a Mormon and they know their theology, if you were to ask them, do you worship Jesus or pray to Jesus? They will say, we pray through Jesus 
to the Father, and they'll quote a Bible verse for you. Matthew 6, Jesus said, Our Father who art in heaven. Jesus himself modeled that we should pray to the Father. You don't pray to Jesus, you pray through Jesus. You don't worship Jesus, you only worship the Father. But the Bible is clear. We are to pray to Jesus, we are to worship Jesus. He's Almighty God himself. The Magi came and traveled 600 miles in Matthew chapter 2, and it says when they got into the house where the baby was, it says they bowed down and they worshipped Him. They worshipped Jesus. The apostles over and over again in the Gospels worshipped Jesus. Just before Jesus ascended back into heaven, the apostles worshipped Jesus. Philippians 2 says that every knee will bow the knee someday and worship Jesus, whether they're a believer or not. And then Revelation chapter 5, the same thing. Jesus is worshipped equally by all of creation alongside God the Father Himself. Jesus is to be worshipped. And Mormonism and every false religion on planet Earth rejects the greatest of all truths. We worship Jesus. But one of my little guys in basketball camp this week, first grader, I, I had a couple unbelievers in my group. And one of them, who was not even a Christian and hadn't really heard the gospel before, he, he told me that he does pray. And I said, well, you do? Because he believed in God. I said, well, well, who do you pray to? Well, I pray to Jesus. But he, he didn't understand the gospel at that time. I had an atheist seven-year-old, and then I had this other guy who didn't know the gospel. But he did say that he prayed to Jesus at night when he went to bed. And I was like, wow, I told, that's cool. Keep praying to Jesus. Keep talking to Him. So that is the different views of Jesus. Then there's the different view of sin. That's number four. Uh, Mormonism or the Latter-day Saint religion, uh, they have a wrong view of sin. They don't have a comprehensive, systematic, clear theology of sin. It's just kind of, you can't really find it. It's kind of here and there and it's patchwork and you've got to go and do some research. And what did this prophet say? And what did this president say? And what did Joseph Smith say? And what did Brigham Young say? And uh, it's, it's just a hodgepodge. And as a result, you get all these conflicting, contradictory views on sin. But categorically, bottom line, Mormonism has a deficient, wrong view, unbiblical view of sin. And this uh, chairman of the Bible department at uh, Brigham Young, as we were sitting there in uh, Southern California eating at uh, one of my favorite restaurants, kind of pricey, forgot the name of it, I love it so much, <laughs> the Spaghetti Factory. And it was really cool because I, it was awesome. He said, order whatever, BYU was paying for the lunch. That's what the, that was cool. Uh, but anyway, so he's telling me all these things and he's telling, telling me, you probably have all these misconceptions about Mormonism and I want to expose all those for you because I hear it all the time and it just irritates me. All these Mormons with their lousy theology. Let me tell you what Mormonism really believes. He said the first one is this idea that Mormons can't have caffeine. That, that is wrong. That's nowhere in our authoritative scriptures. Uh, prophets never spoken on that or condemned caffeine. It's, what it says is that Mormons can't drink hot drinks. So that would have included coffee, hot cocoa. That's where the caffeine is. But they're also not supposed to drink tea, just anything hot. That's forbidden. I think it's according to the Doctrine and Covenants. Um, so that was one of those things that he unveiled as we're talking. But another one that he told me was when, when Mormon, what their view of sin. And they believe that you become a, you're not born a sinner, you become a sinner at age eight. He called it the year of accountability at age eight. And one of their scriptures does uh, refer to this. I think it's Moroni chapter eight, verse eight. And I was going to read it, but uh, I am not well versed. Can't find it quick enough. But basically, what it says, Moroni 8, verse 8, had it last night, wrote it down. 
And it basically says that children are not born sinners. Babies don't need to be baptized because they don't have any sin. As a matter of fact, one of the articles of the faith of Mormonism is babies don't have any sin when they're born because article number two says we believe, this is the, the articles of faith of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, article number two, we believe that men will be punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgression. The Bible teaches just the opposite. Romans 5, we are, we are born under the curse of Adam's sin. We are punished for Adam's sin. That makes, me Adam, that makes me mad at Adam, by the way. But anyway, it's true. It's a reality. But they say, nope. Babies aren't born with sin. They're not born with the sin nature. They become accountable for their sin at age eight. Um, and then they have some other strange views that play into their view of sin. Uh, they also say, regarding the fall, the fall wasn't really a bad event in Mormonism. The fall was a necessary and good event. Just leave it at that. Uh, 2 Nephi chapter 2, verse 25. The fall was a good event and it was necessary so that God could create human beings, which is the exact opposite of what the Bible says. The fall was horrific. It was terrible. It was a transgression. It was an affront to God, condemned and cursed humanity for all time. It was a bad thing. So they have turned sin on its ear and give the, a totally wrong view of sin. So uh, as a Mormon, you're basically either born good or you're born neutral. And you, be, you basically become a sinner. Whereas the Bible says, and then we'll go on to the biblical view of sin, which is point B, biblical Christianity, we are conceived with a sin nature. Christianity says we're born sinners, not only born sinners, we are conceived as sinners because of the sin of Adam, Romans 5. God cursed Adam and Eve, punished them, gave them a sin nature, and part of the curse was that they would pass that sin nature on to everyone born out of their loins. And the only one who bypassed that curse of inheriting a sin nature was Jesus himself because he was born of a virgin. He was not the product of a human man. It was the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and boom, fertilized her egg supernaturally, bypassed the curse of Adam. Jesus was born without a sin nature. The only person in the history of the world that ever happened to that was born of Adam and Eve. But biblical Christianity says every single one of us ever since Adam and Eve, we are born with a sin nature. We inherited from Adam and Eve as a result of the curse of God. Psalm 51, verse 5, is clear when David testified through the, the Holy Spirit saying that he was, uh, he, came, he was brought forth in iniquity. He was brought forth. That's referring to the birth process. He came through the birth canal in iniquity as a sinner at birth. And then the next phrase, a parallel statement, he goes even further. In sin did my mother conceive me. Literally, he inherited a sin nature at the point of conception. When did you become a sinner? Oh, uh, age eight. No. Or when I started doing bad things at age a year and a half? No. Or when I was born? No. When you were conceived. You inherit a sin nature in the womb. That's what the Bible says. Psalm 51, verse 5. Very clear. Very clear. So that which is in the womb is a person. It has a sin nature. John the Baptist, who was in the womb, was filled with the Holy Spirit, which has implications regarding our view of life and abortion from a biblical point of view. Clearly, from God's point of view. So every human born with a sin nature. That's why this whole idea of, boy, if we could only keep the law perfectly, then we would theoretically earn salvation. No, we wouldn't. That has nothing to do with it. Because you have a condemned fallen sin nature and so, so do I. You're already condemned. At conception, before we're even born, we're condemned. Obeying the law has nothing to do with it. 
Our sin nature condemns us and separates us from God. We need a rescue. We need a savior. The sin nature from Christianity. Actually, I'm going to be talking about what the Bible has to say about sin. So I'll talk more about that specifically later. Suffice it to say that uh, Mormons, Mormonism's view on sin is woefully insufficient and totally unbiblical. Let's go on to number five. And that is a view of salvation. The Latter-day Saint Church or Mormonism teaches, and I just tried to summarize it, they teach works righteousness. This idea that if you do good things, you earn favor with God. If you do good things, you earn a little forgiveness at a time. If you do good things, you're on your way on the right path to maybe being saved and maybe becoming a god someday or a goddess. It's all works righteousness which I label human achievement. And that's no different than any other false religion on planet Earth. There are two religions in the world. There's a false one and a true one. There's God's religion and man's religion. There's the religion of Cain and the religion of Abel. Cain's religion is condemned and cursed, and it is man-made religion. It is the religion of trying to do good works to earn favor with God. There's the religion of Abel, which is the religion of faith and pleading out to God in mercy for His grace. Salvation by grace through faith apart from work works from Genesis to Revelation. That is the consistent plan of God for salvation for sinners. So Mormonism teaches works righteousness. You do all these things, you read all these books, you go to the Mormon church, you do all their activities, uh, you get baptized in their church, you get you become a priest in their church. Uh, you get sealed in their church. Hopefully you get married. You have to get married and then you get sealed in the temple. And then you do baptism of the dead. And then you wear the sacred uh, garments in the temple for the rest of And you wear the sacred garments wherever you go. And just all this other stuff that you're constantly trying to earn your salvation and favor with God. Because you never know for sure in this life whether you are eternally saved or not. So it's works righteousness or what I call human achievement. Man trying to pull himself up by his own bootstraps. It's all initiated by God, I mean man, and depend upon man. It's futile. There's no security in it. It's totally uncertain. Contrast that with a biblical view of salvation, which is the next point there, consistent from Genesis to Revelation, and that is salvation is by grace. It is initiated by God always. Adam sinned. Eve sinned. They didn't go to God and repent. They ran and hid in the bushes. That's what sinners do. Sinners run from God. And God in His grace, He runs after sinners. Why did Jesus come in the world? Jesus said of Himself, the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus was on a rescue mission. God takes the initiative in hunting down sinners to give them the good news, to save them by His grace. Saved by grace through faith. Do we contribute anything to the process of salvation? Well, yes and no. I don't contribute any good works whatsoever, but I do contribute the confession of my sin to God. I contribute my prayer of repentance. God, please save me. I contribute my faith, the belief I have in the gospel, the gift of faith. It actually came from God. It was initiated by God. Everything about it is initiated by God. It is His grace. So if salvation is initiated by God, it is by grace, it is totally undeserved, it is unmerited, we are not worthy of salvation, we deserve death and hell, but God in His grace saves some anyway. That's grace. And He's merciful. He doesn't give us what we do deserve as sinners who hate Him. We are born children of wrath, we're born in rebellion against God, we're born separated from God. We run from God, we hate God, we suppress the truth of God. And yet God in His love and mercy pursues us anyway, doesn't He? I know, I know for a fact that for 19 years I was running from God. 
I, there were times where I would literally shake my fist in God's face. I remember it vividly in high school. I didn't believe in God, but when something went bad, God, it was your fault. Yet God loved me anyway. Pursued me, wooed me, gave me the, tru- the truth of the gospel. The Holy Spirit working on my heart, softening me, convicting me, tearing away the blinders of my own sin, tearing away the blinders of satanic blindness, preventing me from seeing the glory of His gospel. This awesome, gracious, merciful, saving God. That's biblical Christianity. Every human being saved by grace through faith apart from works, which I call divine accomplishment. I didn't make it up. Borrowed that one. Human achievement, divine accomplishment. Those are the two religions in the world. Divine accomplishment, capital D, God did it all. He is the initiator. It is His plan. It is His doing. It is all His glory. So that no one should boast. Say, oh, I did it. God liked me. I'm one of His chosen. Nope. It's all of God. We boast in nothing except the cross of Jesus Christ. We boast in nothing, said Jeremiah, except the goodness of God. Right? So it's real simple. So really, Mormonism is no different than any other false religion on planet Earth because they are all human achievement, trying to work their way to God. It's like the seven-year-old I had this week uh, who, who didn't believe in God, and then at one point he said he did believe in God, and he said he was going to heaven, and then I followed up and said, well, why are you going to heaven? And he said, because I obey my mommy. It's like, ooh, i got a problem here. He, he needs to continue to obey his mommy. I need to tell him that's a good thing. Keep obeying your mommy. That is awesome. You need to do that. But that is not going to get you into heaven. Your mommy can't let you into heaven. Only Jesus can. It's by His grace, not by our works. That's just human. I mean, you've got a seven-year-old saying the same thing a 37-year-old would do. I'm going to heaven because I do this. I'm going to heaven because I refrain from doing this. That is human works righteousness. That is not the divine accomplishment of God initiated only by God through the person of Jesus Christ being crucified on the cross where Jesus willingly absorbed the wrath of Almighty God in His own body on behalf of sinners where Jesus was buried, rose again, ascended on high and just cries out and chases sinners down pleading with them to repent of their sin that they might be saved. That's biblical Christianity. And everything else is a counterfeit. So let's go ahead and look at the implications that don't only just apply to Mormonism, they apply to every other religion, I personally believe. Uh, implications. First uh, Thessalonians 5 says, examine everything carefully. And we've got plenty of Christians out there, like I mentioned, a prestigious evangelical seminary that's embracing Mormonism. I don't think they're examining it carefully enough. First Thessalonians 5, examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good. Abstain from every form of evil. False theology is evil. When people started talking about Islam in 2001, people giving their opinions, uh, what do you think of Islam? Everybody's confused. And then politicians and the Pope, and they were coming out, well, I respect Islam, was the statement. That kind of became the tagline. That was real. Po- oh, we respect Islam. We don't agree with everything about it, but we respect it. And people have said that about Mormonism. I don't respect Mormonism because Mormonism is a false religion that deceives people and prevents people from believing in the true gospel and damns people's souls. I don't respect false religion. I love Mormon people because they're just like everybody else. 
There's no difference between one sinner and the next. God so loved the world. You know what that means? God loved the sinful creation that He made and He wants to save them. So we should love the Mormon people. Don't yell at them and chase them off your porch and be rude and crude. Give them the gospel. See if they're willing to talk. But anyway, the point being, examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. False religion, false teaching, false theology. It is evil. Have nothing to do with it. It is wrong. Uh, Another truth. False prophets will arise. Do not be deceived. False prophets will arise. That's on the bulletin. Matthew 25. Jesus warned the church. Do you realize many false prophets are going to arise? And that's been true for 2,000 years in the church. And they will keep coming and they're going to keep coming and they're going to keep coming. And Joseph Smith was one of many in uh, 1820 and 1830 that rose up as a false prophet. He called himself a prophet, the prophet of God, the greatest prophet. And Peter warned us, Paul warned us. What does the Bible say about the latter days, the latter day saints? First, in the book of Timothy, Paul said, in the latter days, the Spirit explicitly says that people will rise up and be deceivers. That's what's going to happen in the latter days. It's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. So false prophets will arise. Expect it. Look for it. Discern. Do not be deceived. Also, another thing we need to do, we don't need to learn everything about Mormon. You don't need to go home and, okay, now I've got to read the Book of Mormon and the Doctrines and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price and memorize all of the things that Joseph Smith... No. That'll make you tired and you'll never accomplish it anyway. To witness to anybody, regardless of their religion, whether they're a Hindu, an atheist, an agnostic, a Mormon, a Jehovah's Witness, uh, it doesn't matter. Uh, an unsaved Presbyterian or Baptist. You don't need to memorize their worldview or religion. You only have to know one thing. Jesus said it in the Gospel of John. Know the truth. Know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you know the truth of Scripture, if you know the truth of the Bible, if you know Jesus personally and you are continually growing and fill your mind with His Word and His truth, that's going to help you. It's going to help you personally to be a discerning person. It's also going to help you witness to other people. Because all you have to give them is the truth. The true view of Jesus, the true view of salvation, the true view of the Bible. Just know the truth. You don't have to memorize all this other stuff. Know the truth. That is liberating. That's freeing, isn't it? Just concentrate on this one book, the Bible. Know the truth and the truth will set you free. Uh, Another point I have here is love unbelievers. Uh, It doesn't matter what his religion is. There's two religions. Believers and unbelievers. Light and darkness, right? That's what Paul said. Righteousness and unrighteousness. Those who are of Christ and those who are of Belial. Those who are of Satan and those who are of God. Love all the unbelievers the same. Desire their salvation. Pray for their salvation. Witness to them if you possibly can with the living God, the living Word of God, the Scriptures, the Gospel. Focus on the Gospel. Focus on Jesus. Don't get uh, sidetracked by talking about secondary issues that can't transform their soul and remove blinders. I, I used to go to these Mormon events all the time down at Biola University with these organizations that witness to Mormons. And I would be there and I'm getting trained and I'm witnessing firsthand in the parking lot in front of Biola an expert Mormon witnesser for three hours talking to a leader in the Mormon church about the 56 false prophecies of Joseph Smith and his 13 wives. This went on for three hours. And I was trying to take notes. Man, I don't know. How am I going to remember this? I can't remember all these facts and stuff. Ooh, this is making me tired. Then I came to realize years later, you know what? Uh, trying to convince a Mormon that Joseph Smith was, a, was sinful and corrupt because he was a polygamist, uh, you can debate all day, and it's not going to save that Mormon. That's not the gospel. It's a distraction, actually. Just talk about the gospel of 1 Corinthians 15, who Jesus is, and how they need Jesus, and how they're going to be held accountable to Jesus as the judge. 
for the truth that you just gave them. And they will probably reject it while you're talking to them. But you're not a failure. What's going to happen is you gave them the supernatural living word of God and you spoke it to them. It went into their ears. It went into their brain. And now it is going to keep moving dynamically in a living way, supernaturally penetrating their heart, their mind, their soul, their conscience. It's going to nag them. The Holy Spirit is going to use that to soften them, to woo them, to draw them to himself. And it could take decades later. God's word never returns void. Isn't that cool? So, love unbelievers, uh, witness to them with the gospel and pray. So stay focused on the gospel. And then after you pray that God would bless what you said to them, especially if you spoke His Word, the Bible, biblical truth, supernatural revelation. That is the only thing that will remove the blindness of sin and the blindness of Satan. is supernatural biblical truth. God's Word. That's it. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then I already said this, Mormons are like all other unbelievers. They are no different. Then i got a question here. So who do you vote for? That's another sermon for another day. But I will say this. Uh, I, I believe that it would be hard for me to say, well, I'm only going to vote for a Christian because when I look at the 40-plus presidents in the United States, there aren't very many true Bible-believing Christians. There just aren't. And... Uh, the governments of the world are living under the times of the Gentiles. The governments of the world are not a part of the church. America is not a Christian nation. That is clear. America was influenced by great Christian people when it was founded, absolutely. And you can read the Declaration of Independence and you can see where the Bible influenced and the Judeo-Christian ethic influenced the terminology of the Declaration of, and even the Constitution. But you can also see uh, deistic, atheistic, uh, Renaissance thoughts leaking through its terminology as well. So it's kind of a hodgepodge. But there were definitely uh, godly people at the founding of this country. All that to say that America is not a Christian nation. This nation uh, falls under the domain of the nations of the world, which is run by the Gentiles according to Jesus. The only Christian nation on earth, according to Peter, is the church. He calls it a Christian nation. That's our Christian nation, is the church. We're in the spiritual domain. Everything else is another domain that belongs and run ultimately by God, and it's mostly ruled by the Gentiles or pagans. Those are Jesus' words in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke. So for the most part, we're going to be like Paul, and we're going to be ruled in terms of emperors and presidents and kings and mayors and governors, for the most part, by people who don't know God. And we will find ourselves in different situations where we have no vote, and it's a dictator, And we need to still follow Romans 13 and submit to the governing authorities because they have been ordained of God. Or we might be very uniquely privileged and be in a country where there's some democracy and we actually have a say. And we can actually vote. And I think that's a matter of stewardship. And you need to be a faithful steward of the freedom that God has given us. And if we have the ability to vote and have a say, and we actually are co-Caesars, that is amazing. We have a responsibility. We are citizens of this earth and citizens of heaven. All that to say, uh, I don't think you have to vote for the only guy that's a Christian because right now a Bible born again, Bible believing Christian, I don't know if there really is one. We don't know. But we should be looking at what they stand for, what they believe, especially on very important spiritual and biblical issues, which are clear. And that's how we should vet our candidates and thank God for this amazing privilege and stewardship responsibility we have to go ahead and cast the lever. And it doesn't matter 
in the end, God is totally in control, regardless of who's in charge and who the governor is and the senators and the presidents, right? God is in control. He, his plan is not... He is fully on course. We are headed in the right direction. God has declared the beginning from the end, hasn't He? But we need to continue to pray for our leaders, praying for peace, praying for the opportunity to live out our Christianity in this society being salt and light. I guess I simply say, uh, don't dismiss a candidate strictly or only on the basis of their specific religion. There are other factors that play into that. And we have to be wise stewards about it. So with that, let's go ahead and pray and let's go to lunch. Thanks for being so attentive today. Father, we do thank you for our time together as a body of believers and facing really a challenging subject. And that's uh, a religion that is very personal, intimate, and precious to so many people. These are people made in your image, whom Scripture says you love dearly, many of whom Jesus died on their behalf, and the Savior is pursuing them, that He might woo them to repentance, that they might be saved. God, help that be our mindset as well. Of anybody that doesn't know Christ, regardless of who they are, uh, give us a heart for the lost in your perspective. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for giving us the remedy, the good news of your precious gospel that transforms sinners into saints and removes sinful and satanic blindness. Uh, And you deserve all glory and praise for it. We thank you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.